always looking to pad it out. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just watching I the timer tick away. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're at six <laughs> seven, seconds. Seven, eight, nine. <laughs> no, hi, Jack. How you doing? Yeah, I'm good. It's all yeah. good. Everything's yeah. all good. Everything's we're great. all chilling. Yeah. Everything's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, Dan. No, uh, I forgot to add. Does my microphone sound okay? Does it, does it sound like I'm recording through my microphone? Your microphone sounds check. like you're recording through your microphone, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Don't want a repeat of when we interviewed June from Gentle and Lucky Unit. We were just recording through a shitty, like, headset yeah. accidentally. <laughs> um, no time to fuck around today, Dan. We got we got two listener emails uh, to get through. My God. Um, one is on discussing the value form. Um, with people and this is something we bought up a couple episodes ago and the other one is about um kind of our last episode i think it was our last episode on wallerstein right and the kind of like pmc stuff uh-huh. so i'm going to start with before. the first one or the one before what was the last one we read some more of the lowenstein and Owenstein. the two richards what are they called, What's oh, yeah. called? dialectical <laughs> yeah. um, dialectical violence low, yes, low, right. low, i don't actually know what they're saying Lewont and levitt the ones and, <laughs> close and enough i just sort of put them together <laughs> the two richards i like that yeah the two um, richards so our first email that i'm going to go through is from a listener named mark this is from a couple weeks ago actually that we got sent this and i do not remember what episode that we were talking about this on but we were basically discussing how difficult it can be to talk economics and i guess just like political economy with liberals or with people who aren't uh, really politically or economically inclined. And at some point we said something along the lines of it can get kind of tricky sometimes because you can kind of just wind up t- fucking up and talking about value theory and making a mess of it, which is, I think, something we've... Well, have you considered... <laughs> Heavily at risk of that. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Have you considered uh, uh, use value versus exchange value? <laughs> and anyway, this is from our listener named Mark. And Mark, Hi, Mark. Um, what's up, Mark? Thank you for the email, Mark. Mark said that there are ways of talking about this stuff without getting too esoterical. And then Mark sent through two links to something from, and I'm going to fuck up pronouncing both of these, Gigan Standpunked, which this will all be in the link in the description if I remember. And then something also from Critis Decuffs, shrugging, hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Um, and then he went on to say, I think it's also worth raising some of the very basic things about the economy, which are just weird to people when you highlight it, e.g. that automation and mechanization, i.e. increasing productivity, leads to poverty as people get thrown out of work. It's just an absurdity that the ability to produce more stuff doesn't mean that we all have more stuff and or that we can all work less. We're in a society where working less is actually a misfortune. Or that when we have crises under capitalism, this doesn't mean that there's a lack of useful stuff but that it just can't be sold and it's sitting in warehouses. People lose livelihoods not because society has a lack of material wealth, but because the pursuit of process, process profit has been interrupted. Um, and then they ended the email with something along the lines of, I don't know how much response and feedback you get. I'd just like to add that I like your podcast, but I don't necessarily agree with you or share an interest in some of the topics you covered, <laughs> which is like not the first time somebody who's emailed <laughs> us has said exactly that, which is incredible. Um, but just to say, excellent email from Mark. And I think, yeah, I think that we can all get caught up a little bit with Mark's brain sometimes and want to be like exchange value, use value. Have you considered where value comes from? Just focus on the obvious things. Yeah, I guess it's, I think there's some really important points in there. Like there are material real world things that these theories are designed to explain, right? They, they... Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and as Mark says, like they do refer to um, mechanization or like other contradictory things that you wouldn't necessarily think happen, but 
do happen kind of thing um so yeah that's probably a good way to start i'm definitely going to start thinking about that like how mm. does this relate to people's existence and take it from there yeah and just read the I, room then i can bring up value theory three sentences in rather than three <laughs> yeah. words in. yeah and be like wait a minute where does what, what is valorization again hang on let me open up let me crack open capital again i'll figure it out <laughs> Yes, um, and that's why increasing automation actually leads to a decline in yeah, yeah. profit. <laughs> yeah. Have you considered how many coats you can get with 15 yards of linen? Um, okay, so that was excellent email. Thank you, Mark. That, I think, set us on the right path. Don't always be an asshole is what I've uh, learned from that. Our next email is from a listener named Andrew. <clears throat> and Andrew sent a nice long email about our episode on Wallerstein, where we were discussing this kind of idea of bourgeois-fied proles aristocratized uh, capitalists and kind of prolified capitalists. Maybe not that, but, you know, kind of like class position versus class location kind of stuff. Um, and Andrew made a couple of really good points. Where is it? So I'll skip forward a little bit where they say, what's noteworthy now is that capitalism is increasingly unable to offer a desirable life path to the people who get good education um, or at least, you know, kind of like elite education, both doctors and lawyers, as well as many other professions, either can't find decent work, or especially in the case of doctors in the US, can only get work under conditions that only workaholics can sustain. Consider also adjuncts. Um, capitalism has accomplished something both sinister and completely astonishing, creating a group of workers who require an absurdly high degree of training, yet make pitiful wages, negligible benefits, and utterly bleak prospects. Normally, capitalism creates the second group of conditions by de-skilling a population through automation, but I can't see that that's what's happening here. And then to skip forward a little bit, they also say, um, so if I can tie this all together nicely, capitalism is not offering the vast majority of workers that taste of petty bourgeois lifestyle anymore. And the people on those petty bourgeois slash PMC career tracks are increasingly thrown into the precariat, the precariat, you know, a lot to say about that, but the point's well made. This creates what I heard someone uh, describe on another podcast. You're not allowed to listen to other podcasts if you listen to our podcast, just to say only us. Someone else described on another podcast as counter elites. The paradigmatic example this person gave was Lenin, who was a lawyer before he was a revolutionary. Um, and in a way that gives me hope as more and more of these highly skilled PMC find themselves with nothing left to lose. But I also think that there's a 50% chance that the capitalists just figure out a way to buy back their allegiance and extend capitalism's lifespan for another century, virtually guaranteeing devastating environmental collapse that's nice so basically just an email to say you know there's this kind of promise that's been given to a lot of people especially skilled professionals these days and they're not able to get what their parents got or what their grandparents got right um i know a lot of like skilled professionals who live in cities who can't afford houses anywhere near there and they make obscenely high wages um see that's interesting the only thing i would say and when i emailed back i just was like i wonder if this is going to lead to people being radicalized. I know a lot of like adjuncts who aren't getting work, who have been politically radicalized in a good way, or if this will just make like lawyers and stuff like reactionaries. <laughs> Time will tell, but you know, something to, to keep an eye on at least. Yeah, I guess something I've been thinking about quite a lot recently is the degree to which there is a, an increasing skepticism about the longevity of the system, the functionality of the system in people who I encounter. And, um, that class of person who um andrew just described there who um may have taken out second like tertiary education and gotten a master's and um expected a certain uh lifestyle dividend from that um 
that's over the basically over the past 15 or so years that's been gradually eroded away um and the struggle for um uh the struggle that people are experiencing to like advance in life find a career path build a hope find a home um buy a home rather all of those crises are crises that are particular to that class that we're identifying as the managerial or potentially managerial class i suppose um and it's amongst that class so far as i can see there seems to be a real um skepticism growing you know like this increasingly um this thing that's reported to us in polls about this uh, increasing favorability of the idea of socialism and people don't seem to be getting more conservative as they get older anymore um my worry is that what it results in is an extreme degree of pessimism um and there being a lack of meaningful alternatives that are presented to people i was having a conversation this week and what i realized after having that the conversation was what i really appreciated about um corbynism and my experience of that sort of like social democratic turn was that no matter how much you may want to criticize all of or certain aspects of what was being proposed you might criticize the reformism you know you might criticize the sort of like mmt elements of the economic program or what have you at least there was a real comprehensible alternative that was being presented and it was being presented i felt in a I, I mean i was deliberately engaging with it right so maybe it didn't make sense to other people but i felt like it made sense to me and i felt like there was language that i could use to communicate to people whether those solutions were adequate or, or not i don't know but um it's the first time in a while that i've sort of missed that degree some degree of like certainty that was being given to me by uh some political force in the world kind of thing i just have to fall back and somehow rely on my own um hopes for uh marxism and uh, <laughs> communism <laughs> which are much harder to maintain um when it's just uh i don't know something that's not really concretely reflected in broader politics i guess yeah that was a very yeah. rambling answer i don't know what, what no i, I think there. i think you're absolutely right this is the time to ramble i mean uh -huh, we great. ramble for the i mean it's all rambling right? yeah. <laughs> i would say too the what you're saying kind of made me think about this is i was a little bit like why am i a little suspicious of you know young professionals not getting their like you know suburban mansions it's like why why did i think that could be a little bit reactionary i suppose because when you're talking about like proles being put into bad situations where they could potentially become revolutionary that's like you know oh i can't feed my family and i'm being kicked out of my home whereas like this kind of you know middle class for lack of a better term it's kind of like i don't have my suburban mansion and my hummer to drive to and from my job i'm stereotyping these people a bit right but it's like the things that that class location class position gets promised are not sustainable and not something you would maybe necessarily want and so like that quality of life you know, not quality of life, but like that kind of consumerism that you generally see with that kind of young professional class. So obviously, I don't know, we want to be building socialism on a positive vision at all costs. But I think that we recognize that a certain amount of, you know, not to go full immigrationist theory or whatever, but a certain amount of that is going to kind of be necessary to build a broader movement, people being put into positions where they have to act, right? Um, but yeah, against all of that, we should try and be positive. Yeah. 
it would be interesting to say i don't think it's something that um is that present in the discourse in politics in this country at the moment although maybe people can let us know um what parts of the world this what i'm about to describe is happening but um or maybe it is happening and i'm just ignorant um <laughs> the uh, the idea that i'm still not said is that it would be interesting to see if uh something enters the discourse the political discourse a strategy designed to appeal a sort of reactionary politics that's designed to appeal to that class of um person right like uh some kind of reactionary politics which seeks to blame the misfortunes or the sort of failed life chances um of those people that we were just describing seeks to find a scapegoat for them um I don't know whether you see that at the moment. It does like the moment yeah. that feels that feels like it feels like the sort of like you know the the, the scapegoating of migrants or um, like uh, marginalized gender groups or whatever doesn't really de- be feel like it's designed to create some kind of um, scapegoat um, mm. in the minds of the sort of like uh, declining uh, declasse. Pa- um, managerial class people i guess yeah i i've said before on the show you heard it here definitely not first but i think real estate developers and agricultural petty bourgeoisie are going to wind up especially in america being some of the most reactionary classes out there and i think they definitely have the potential for that you know anything that's going to be directly affected by climate change where the state is going to try and do its best to like negate within capitalist frameworks the worst of this stuff when it pushes back against certain capitalist or petty bourgeois types like that, yeah, I, I definitely see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the I mean, it's, yeah, it's easy, it's very easy to imagine those people who might fall into a classically petty bourgeois um, class strata being susceptible to a reactionary politics. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> so. Yeah, we'll but, see. But, but whether the whether the professional managerial class, maybe we, I don't know whether that class is like. I mean, maybe some sections of it could be described as petty bourgeois, but um, uh, other elements of it not, I guess. Yeah, I think we're we're kind of, I think maybe there's some term slippage going on with petty yes. bourgeois and PMC. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know what the PMC is. No, no, no. <laughs> That's where anybody I does. don't know why I started I, using it, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was in the email and it definitely yeah. came up in the Wallerstein stuff, so... Yeah. Anyway, Andrew, Mark, thank you for your emails. Lovely. If anybody else wants to email auxiliarystatements at gmail.com, go ahead. Our inbox, our replies, Dan, our DMs, they're open. Send us nice things, please. Um, Dan, the king is back. <laughs> the king is indeed back. <laughs> Which king do we speak of? Our king. Our king, the one our true king. king. <laughs> Ralph Miliband. Ralph Miliband. Yeah. What did we read this week? Well, I'm stoked. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, it's nice to have that email from Andrew referring to our episode that we did a couple back on um, Emmanuel Wallerstein and his description of the sort of like historical context of the bourgeoisie, because one of his side notes was this reference to um, conceptions of the how to understand the state and the capitalist state. Um, and he made reference to this disagreement between Ralph Miliband and um, I, was, I always thought it was um, Nicholas Palancis, but it's actually just Nikos Palancis. We can call um, him Nicholas. Yeah, why not? Uh, <laughs> Nick, old Nick Palancis, um, around 
this is in the late 60s and early 70s, um, a, dis a disagreement that they had around um, how to conceptualize uh, the state uh, in capitalist society. Obviously, Ralph Miliband wrote a book called The State in Capitalist Society, which um, I'm sorry to let us know we did not read. <laughs> <laughs> which won't play into our discussion here today <laughs> at all. <laughs> Instead, instead, I thought it would be a good idea if we read um, a Palancis's response to Miliband and then Miliband's response to Palancis. So, you know, um, something a little shorter that also might create, uh, contain sort of like some sparks of conflict and um, introduce us to a, what, 40 or 50 year old debate at this point. But <laughs> there is very definitely some interesting content in this and we'll sort of like uh, try and explain some of it and try and uh see how it has influenced our thinking as we normally do i guess as we yeah the old college try as we say here on auxiliary <laughs> statements um I, I i enjoyed this i it's funny this is typical kind of academic back and forth because as we said did not read ralph milban's book that they're talking about in depth here um got a pretty good read for it though i think i think we kind of understand yeah. it we'll just say that we read it um it's kind of typical academic stuff though because it's like i Reading the Palancis, I was like, fuck yeah, this guy's so right, so true. Miliband's an idiot. And then I read the response and I was like, Palancis sucks, man. Miliband <laughs> is so right. And to a certain extent, they're kind of just completely talking past each other. Mm -hmm. I think that maybe Palancis was just using this as an opportunity to be like, I'm a structuralist. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, cool, man. And he makes some excellent points. Um, I actually also think that some of the stuff that he says about Miliband's um, process, what's it called? Methodology is, is, is good. Again, didn't read the book, so maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But then I think that Miliband comes across as a bit more nuanced, unsurprisingly. But yeah, this gets, this, this gets painted as structuralism versus instrumentalism. And I'm interested to know what you think, because I'm not certain that it was that i think that palancis is pretty clearly like an arch althusarian structuralist but i don't think that miliband is really just an instrumentalist i think it is more nuanced than that yeah i mean uh, uh, to put myself at danger of like uh -oh. misusing a term that we regularly misuse like i feel <laughs> like there is something quite dialectical about oh um, yes about miliband's approach i wrote that down <laughs> oh <laughs> um which doesn't fall on either side of that sort of like structuralist instrumentalist boundary. Um, maybe I'll have a very uh, poor effort explaining that distinction, I suppose. <laughs> um, uh, Palancis and his sort of structuralism, most of this seems to refer to the relationship between the state itself and then particular individual state actors. Um or rather, well, maybe there are different meanings actually here because there's like, there seems to be the state itself and then the sort of like um, individual class agent. But then there's also the the existence of the state and then the ruling class. Um, and there's a question of, it's almost like which com comes first, you know, for the instrumentalist, the class, the, the state rather, the, the function of the state is defined by the makeup of the ruling class and the sort of the relations between the ruling class and those members of the state bureaucracy and the various different um, apparatuses of the state um, and the linkage between the two um, 
and to how to and also to what degree the two are one and the same like is there a bourgeois class and is there a separate bureaucratic state apparatus and then for the structuralists it seems to be the roles are reversed and what's definitive is the system the sort of like structural logic of capitalism and almost the state stands outside of and controls in some ways or supersedes in importance the power of the ruling class and the state is sort of this like objective thing which is designed to maintain the conditions of the system it's designed to allow for the continued function of capitalism and that sort of that definition allows for situations where the state might actually go against the the wishes and desires of any particular member of the ruling class or any um class actor or rather any or even any historical class grouping by which i mean like the state could be considered to be a historical uh, in a structuralist sense whereby um its goal might be to maintain the long-term requirements of capitalism rather than the sort of short-term desires of any particular ruling class i guess yeah 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 absolutely and i think i think it's worth touching on too before we get into like their specific back and forth like why it is that it's important to have a, like an objective study of the state right and i think that they are both right that it's definitely something that marxism has been kind of understudied because they're both pushing back against so-called like economism right where it's just like every single social phenomena is eminently reducible to the base there's the base and then there's the superstructure and it all comes down to, you know, the social relations and the economic uh, structure of society, right? Um, and while to a certain extent you can make something like that argument, if you just do that, if you just constantly go, oh, yeah, well, why does this happen? And it's capitalism. You're going to lose sight of a lot of really important things. So like obviously like race, gender, and then the state, right? Like I, they're both taking as their starting point the fact that this capitalist state is an instrument of class power and that it exists to sturdy up and continue to reproduce um, the social formations necessary to continue accumulation and capitalist social structures, right? Um, they have a bit of a difference in how they actually define the state, but I think that they make a good point about like, even though this is an instrument of class power, we need to understand how it works and what the relationship of, as you're saying, not just the ruling class is to the state structure itself, but also the bureaucrats, the managers, the people that run it. Um, how does that actually work? You know, we need like a theory of all of this stuff. To a certain extent, I kind of felt like it was maybe a little bit abstract. And I feel like a lot of these questions were answered directly in the um, book that we read on the American Constitution, where it was just a concrete study of how and why the American state structure was adopted and who did it and for what literal exact reasons they did it and why it continues to this day. Um, so yeah, they go back and forth a little bit on being like, I care more about concrete detail than you do. And then Milliband responds, and he's like, clearly you do not. Clearly I do. You have not read my book, good sir. But um, yeah, as I said, Palancis makes a lot of really good points about the objective nature of the state. Miliband comes back and is like, here's a bit more nuance, you, you idiot. Um, but, yeah. I mean, um, one of the things that I really did enjoy was the first essay is by Palancis and he's sort of like, very, 
he reserves a lot of words for being kind toward Miliband yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and then proceeds to critique certain <laughs> elements of it um, in, an, in an effort to be very sort of like cordial. Um, and then what Miliband has a tendency to do is quote Palancis's like kind <laughs> words or like misquote them sometimes and then just in in sort of like um very sort of like somewhat poetic academic ways say that Palancis is an idiot and is <laughs> yeah. totally totally misunderstood and also all of his theories are like Miliband significant like vehemently disagrees with yeah um, literally He'll like, be all, like oh, all of thank the, you for all the of the ways words. where Palantis has suggested that they might be some overlap actually um, <laughs> yeah. Miliband's like well no actually no we are quite fundamentally different <laughs> yeah I know it's very good uh -huh. I, yeah cordial I wonder how angry they were at their typewriters and do you know if there was another response to this or if Palantis was just like okay whatever I don't know yeah fair enough we don't need to know <laughs> we'll leave it at this um, um mm. Where where do you want to start with it? Because there are a couple different. It can be broken down in a couple different ways. I think. Hmm. I mean, I suppose yeah. There's two there's two options, right? We can either we could either go through um, sort of how Palantzis organizes his essay, or we could go through how Miliband organizes his his essay. Um, in some ways, I wonder whether Miliband's response is a, actually a better structure for going through it, perhaps. Um, Miliband's is also much shorter, which I appreciated because Palancis, you can tell, wrote this kind of like long thing where he goes in depth about all this different stuff. And Miliband just basically responds and is like, no, you're yeah, wrong about that. I'm yeah, ident identifies, <laughs> the, identify, identifies the important things and sort of like uh, condenses all the bits where Palancis is seemingly making the same point over and over again. Um, yeah. But they, do, they, they it is the same thing. I, I wonder whether um, maybe we should start with having a discussion about this disagreement over method yeah um, okay. because it, yeah it sounds a bit like you perhaps appreciated palancis's criticism of Miliband's method um the crux of which i think is that um palancis is criticizing Miliband for engaging with um bourgeois theoreticians of the state on their own terrain um and sort of acknowledge it like he what what Miliband is doing is acknowledging points that um bourgeois theorists or what they what they call in this like um people who have a pluralistic idea of how the state functions. Miliband is sort of accepting those points and then criticizing them, sort of like maybe arguing against them, but on on grounds which recognizes the significance of that terrain. And uh, Palantis is making a slightly more radical proposition, which is you shouldn't really even acknowledge um, these bourgeois theoreticians' idea of the state. And it sort of stems from Palantis making the point that like Marx didn't gift to us uh, a particularly thoroughly worked out theory of the state. There was sort of it was just generally lacking. And as you said before, like. Um, he suggests that in general, both the second and third internationals were in their respective ways quite economistic in their thinking, um, which led them to either in the form of the second international think that they could take quite a reformist approach because the second international didn't really recognize the necessity of like uh, 
destroying the state, but rather thought you could take over those apparatuses and use them to transition to socialism. And he criticizes the Third International for also being economistic, but um, on the grounds that it kind of led to this era where they didn't really recognize the difference between the fascist form of capitalist state and the um, sort of like bourgeois democratic form of capitalist state, but sort of like considered them both to be the same, um, i.e. functions of the same economic system without recognizing the political significance of their two, the respective difference, differences between the two of those. Um, and he's generally suggesting that Miliband is following in a similar process, like not really having a theory, a sort of fully worked out Marxist theory of the state, or rather betraying a properly Marxist theory of the state and adopting a generally bourgeois one, even from a critical standpoint. Yeah, which it's which Miliband's response is, no, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is like, okay, I guess we'll never know because I'm not going to read the book anytime soon. I think to go back to the methodology stuff, I think that there's generally a good criticism to be made of a lot of Marxist uh, literature where a lot of bourgeois terminology is just adopted and taken on because like Marxist, I forget, there was that when we read the Hillary Putnam, he made this point about like Marxist kind of being like a boogeyman in terms of the social sciences, right? Where it's like when you're discussing sociology or economics or politics, with someone who isn't a Marxist, even like a Keynesian or something, right? Like you're just, you're talking past each other. You're talking about completely different things because most of what liberals will want to do, progressive social Democrats is like ameliorate the worst conditions of capitalism. Whereas Marxists just take capitalism as the bad thing to begin with, right? And that's where you start. And so I do think that there generally is a bit of an issue with kind of using bourgeois terminology or stuff. Again, didn't read his book, so I don't know how much Miliband actually did that. Miliband's response is, of course, I understand that the state is like an objective structure to a certain extent. And when we get into kind of like um, more of the instrumentalism stuff, we'll see how he kind of has, as you say, a bit more of a dialectical response to that. Um, but I think what his criticism of Miliband specifically all kind of hangs on this idea of the, a plurality of elites, which isn't something that I'm really fully familiar with. Is it? Is it just that Miliband's discussing like managers and bureaucrats and all of these different people as like kind of slightly different versions of elites. Is that is that what it is? I was kind of confused by it. Um, I think it more it refers to um, the sort of like slippage in sort of like the slippage between members of a sort of objective members of the bourgeois bourgeoisie that Palantzis is very keen to define in very strictly Marxist terms as being like um, defined by a relationship to the means of production. And then people who fulfill some kind of like state function, um, whether they're, well, I mean, like managers sort of fall into um, particular focus in this discussion right but like maybe it could refer to any other any number of other things like um whereas Miliband is willing to um fold that kind of category or sort of like a general plurality of people who have a varying relationships to capital um and to the state and fulfill different roles which are state functions and designed to comp uh, sort of like um 
aid with the continued reproduction of capitalism and the capitalist state, but without being very strictly defined as uh, members of the bourgeois class. Um, and also Miliband is suggesting that it's like through approximate relationship between those two people. So you have a class of sort of like bureaucrats who have adopted a lot of like bourgeois ideology and bourgeois thinking through having a direct relationship with um with members of the bourgeois class so Miliband has what Palantzis talks about as like a um a sort of individual centered understanding of what's happening where um it's all about the actual intention of uh the individuals involved um Whereas Palantzis is like, no, you're fulfilling simply a structural function um, and your intent really doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, it, it kind of feels like they're talking about two different things then because it feels like Palantzis, it just comes out and it, maybe this can get us onto talking about managers then and bureaucrats because Palantzis comes out and is like, it. listen, dude, it doesn't matter what your ideology is. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're seeking profit or not for your firm or whatever, what determines class in a Marxist analysis is your relationship to the means of production and your relationship to production in general. And in that sense, there is no problem of managers because they are not capitalists done. And he just, he just dusts his hand hands. But I feel like that isn't particularly what Miliband's interested in doing. Miliband actually kind of wants to know, you know, whether or not he would call those people bourgeois or capitalists or what, right? Like, he kind of wants to know maybe a little bit more about politically how these things work and why these people act in the way that they do. Cause they're, you know, they might be relying on wages and they might be proles in that sense. Uh, but they're clearly, there's something else going on because they're acting in ways that benefit capitalists. And again, we talked about this is bought up in capital. This Wallerstein, I think, actually was really interesting on this because he was just like, Yeah, you got bourgeoisified proles, you got prolified bourgeois, you got aristocratic, you know, capitalists or whatever. He's like, you know, there's some slippage. But I do think that, like, while part of me wants to say that Palantis is right when he's just like, managers are clearly not capitalists, like, what are you talking about? Neither are bureaucrats. Um if you're just doing pure sociology, yeah, I guess you're correct if you want to like be that much of a stickler for Marxist terminology. But also, like, I found it weird because if you're trying to do politics, you need to understand this stuff a bit better. And I think that's kind of what Miliband's trying to do, which is weird because Palantis in these letters is the only one who draws political conclusions out from these theories. And it's fucking political conclusions. It's like I kept writing in the margins, man, he's so close to getting it because he'll be like, the state is this ultimate objective form and the people are simply bearers of what it wants to do. And it's all reducible to, you know, what the capitalists want. It's an, object it's an objective structure. It doesn't matter about the individual people. Anyway, this is why we need Leninism. <laughs> it's just like, okay, yeah, okay, gotcha. But to just wrap it all up, I guess to kind of tie it back to the methodology stuff, they might be slightly talking about two different things. Palantis is technically correct, like the kid in the back of the class that like raises his hand and is like, um, actually, you'll find that these people, their relationship to production is not that of the bourgeoisie. But it's like, this is what makes me appreciate Miliband's nuance, because it's like, well, these people are clearly acting in different ways. They're not acting like proles would in a typical Marxist sense. So you can't just throw that out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your your um the fact that you bring up the sort of political aspects of this is really vital. You're right, like Palantzis is very clearly a Leninist. Like he 
he seems to be identifying Lenin's value. This is come coming back to what I was saying about Marxism not really having a theory of the state, right? Um, he seems to be identifying of one of the values of Lenin that Lenin um, takes from Engels and other people, like this idea that um, what you have to do is thoroughly target the bourgeois state. Your objective has to be. Um, destroy the state rather than think that you can take over its institutions so lenin was directly counterposing himself to the sort of like reformism of the um second international and you're right like that's the kind of politics that palancis is trying to advance but i feel like now there are different different accusations that can be leveled at different people right like um Miliband accuses Palantzis as effectively being an ultra leftist, right? And <laughs> for ad- for adopting a logic which is actually very similar to the economism of the sort of like second and third internationals, but a sort of like uh, a sort of a similar kind of economic determinism, but one which is based on this idea of like a sort of structural determinism. Um, and then people can also come back to Miliband and look at some of the things that he wrote and suggest that actually. He's being far too much of a reformist. Um, Miliband, at the end of his, his essay, kind of like um, identifies uh, Palantzis as having a sort of like being representative of a left deviation in the way that I just described of being relatively ultra leftist in his like in some of the like it's it's quite rem- like the Palantzis is quite reminiscent of. Um, uh, like communizer thinking or ultra leftist thinking, right? Like it's total, um, like don't engage with trade unions at all because they're just um, maintaining a ideology of workerism, and um, you should just like not engage that. You don't engage political parties, don't engage with bourgeois politics in general. Which um, I've definitely looked very favorably upon in the past, and we have a sort of like ultra leftist dalliances right so we have a respect for the craft yeah (laughs) quite um but then also um miliband i think is also suggesting that you need to have this the kind of like nuanced understanding of what's happening um on the detailed level on the interpersonal level on the level of relationships between different factions of the bourgeoisie different um state factions you know like all of these different elements interplay with one another to lead to concrete political outcomes um and to ignore that there are important relationships happening here that do happen on a sort of like relational level um can probably lead to quite fundamental political missteps um and like um miliband does also identify that there are certain types of right deviations that happen where you go too far down this path and you lose sight of the fundamental um, class divisions within society and you might adopt a kind of pluralistic understanding of the state where it's just a whole series of different agents making similar claims and demands of the state and the state responds to some people in certain ways and some people in others. And Miliband's intention is to sort of like skirt a line between these two Um I guess it's for readers of his to determine whether he achieves that or not. 
but I, I I'm very inclined toward him in this debate from that standpoint of like um, here is an engagement with real world analysis of the concrete situation and it's probably better not to like sort of like force um, certain grids onto things and try and force people into boxes that they're not necessarily in. And I, I'm, I, it's, it's nice that you brought up um, the Wallerstein reading because there are some things that, about this that really chime with some of the sort of historical analysis that we've read about in the past of like uh, recognizing that there is evolution in history and recognizing there are different stages um, of capitalism and there might be different stages of the state even different f- state forms that appear even internal to capitalism at different points in history um and it's sort of that enmeshing of politics and history um that i generally quite appreciate as being important substantive research into the world that's actually going to be productive on a political level yeah yes. Exactly. It's so funny how they're both just like Palantis is like, yeah, get a load of this guy. He's an ultra leftist. And then Villapan's like, fuck, I'm an ultra leftist. Fuck you. You're an ultra leftist. It's so funny. It is interesting too. You're right. I hadn't thought about that, about how this kind of approach is shared by like Althusserian ultra structuralists and like communizers. It's kind of funny, but I still don't understand how that can make you a leftist. I understand how it can make you like a communizer and just be like, fuck it, man. But I don't understand how it can make you a Leninist. It's like, Especially because this guy, I think eventually, yeah, I don't know. I just don't get it. It's like if the state is this ultimate thing that weighs on everybody so heavily that the personal interpersonal relations don't matter at all, the individual relations, then yeah, you're going to want to smash the state and everything that goes along with it. But the strategy that Leninism or just kind of classic social democracy, I guess I don't know what the fuck he means by Leninism. That could kind of mean anything. It just doesn't seem to chime with that kind of ultra structuralism. But I don't know, maybe I'm just missing something there. I think that this also makes me think of the um, one of the uh, Mike Davis readings that we did um, about the new rights road to power as well, because I think that you're absolutely right. It's like if you just imagine, you know, ultra structuralism and you ignore the kind of differences between different forms of states or even different factions of the bourgeoisie and their representatives in different political parties, right? Um, you'll get blindsided by really terrible things. And you've really got to just be out of the loop to think that that's fine to just be like, well, what are you going to do? Get involved? Republican, Democrat, man, it's all the same to me. Like clearly, you know, this has an effect on working people's lives. And what Mike Davis was saying was that, um, you know, he was talking about the new rights road to power, basically tracing a lineage from like Goldwater through to, you know, Nixon, Reagan, and then eventually um, kind of like the Bushes, right? And now kind of like Trump, right? And how these were kind of representatives of different factions of capital. And, um, you know, if there is no room for agency in state structures, how did that happen? And I think that you would be, it would be absurd to pretend like there's no difference between Trump and like Jimmy Carter or something like that, right? Like I'm not out here defending the Democrats by any means, obviously, right? But like, come on, man, you know what I mean? Um, and just to read a little bit of what Miliband says, 
it's exactly what you're saying. I wrote in the margins here, Nazis are bad, just to remember that because he makes a very funny point halfway through this. He says, the political danger of structural superdeterminism would seem to me to be obvious for if the state elite is at, is as totally imprisoned in objective structures as is suggested, it follows that there really is no difference between state ruled, say, by bourgeois constitutionalists or whether conservative or social democrat and one ruled by fascists. It was the same approach which led the common turn and its class against class period fatally to underestimate what the victory of the Nazis would mean for the German working class movement which in hindsight is fucking stupid, but you see people kind of still doing this crap now. This is an ultra-left deviation, which is also not uncommon today. But then there's also the obverse of a right deviation, which assumes that changes in government, for instance, the election of a social democratic government accompanied by some changes in the personnel of the state system, are sufficient to impart an entirely new character to the nature and role of the state. Both are deviations and both are dangerous. I think that that's pretty much correct. I wonder if Palancis would disagree with that. Um but yeah, clearly Miliband, who's being painted as this, oh, you just think it's all about interpersonal relationships. When Palancis said that, I was like, there's no way our guy Miliband thinks that because you have to be so stupid to just think that, right? And of course, like the first lines of Miliband's letter are like, I do not think that obviously the state is an objective structure. But again, to just imagine it as a thing that nobody can ever change, you know, just go read the like the hundred page book or whatever it is on the economic history of the constitution of the United States. It's like, here's how a brand new, completely different straight state structure was established. And um, here's why that state structure is objective and why it weighs on people extremely heavily as he does in his analysis of like the Senate and, you know, Congress and the judicial branch and the executive branch is saying, this is clearly a capitalist state, but also this was changed by like a group of people who held bonds and like inbred slave owners in Virginia. You know what I mean? So it's like, clearly there is some room for agency. Yeah. 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 That's a really interesting point that I hadn't really thought about it in that context, right? Like there is a particular section of the bourgeoisie that um, takes political action to define the state in a way which is particularly advantageous to them. Um, they're not just being totally dominated by the state, some sort of abstract state deciding what is good for them, kind of thing. So, um, that sort of political agency is possible. Um, mm. I wonder whether we want to talk about ideological state yes. apparatuses. Yes, I was waiting for this. <laughs> this is the thing, Dan, that put us off reading French Marxists. Yeah, for about I, I realized we'd, we'd, we'd <laughs> accidentally we'd accidentally ended up reading something French, <laughs> but written by a Greek, which is even more worrying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. talk us through that. I, well, I will say yeah, the ISA it. stuff I was confused by in the Althusser, and this did elucidate it, but I'm not sure it made it any better. Yeah, I mean, that, I was thinking about, I was trying to think back to reading that Althusser essay and how little of that essay actually refer, referred to ideological state apparatuses and repressive state apparatuses. Yeah, what um, the hell? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, Palantzas is just one of those classic things where he's like, maybe Miliband and I are making the same mistake in the sense that we're <laughs> we're forget we're um maybe maybe we're both failing to think about ideologically and ideology rather in a sufficiently full way. Um and then Miliband's response is, No, actually, no, I do talk about ideology all the time. Um I am he's not. He's like, Did you actually read charge. my book? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but no, like, um it is quite a, it, it is a good useful explanation that Palancis gives of the distinction between ideological and repressive state apparatuses um and 
what is meant by those two terms and what they're designed to achieve. The repressive state apparatus are quite obvious and like he suggests that Marxists traditionally have thought about the state purely in the context of repressive apparatuses, um, which is somewhat in the sort of like falling in line with the idea about like um, uh, the state being the thing which has the sort of like legal recourse to violence, you know, and the, the, the legitimate use of the state is the legitimate use of force kind of thing. But what he's saying is no, like the the maintenance of the system, the systemic maintenance that's conducted by the sort of abstract idea of the state is not full is not purely achieved through uh law courts and police and armies um and all of those things which are uh repressive but rather through a sort of like whole series of other institutions um which he, which all the classic ones, you know, the media and the schools and the family and the church and the religions and what have you. Classic. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've talked about these before, right? So that's what I mean by classic. Um, and he's saying what the structuralist approach says, what the sort of Althusserian approach says is that we should recognize those institutions as also being part of the state. Um, and he sort of like, uh, sets up this model of the state which is very like all-consuming like all of these elements fall within this totality um and Miliband just sort of vehemently disagrees with this idea um <laughs> and i think i think legitimately so um yeah. that you just have to recognize there's a certain degree well sort of one of the things that palanza says is that like what what he thinks is being clearly demonstrated by this structure is the idea that it's it's impossible to contest political power at any of these sites and he sort of he cites the conflict within the french university right and says that like it's impossible to resist um capitalism uh at the site of the the university um and i think as i understand it milliband's response is no you do need to be able to break the state down into these various institutions um and recognize their varying contributions and be able to uh contest politics in these places um not again because you're some kind of reformist who thinks that you can use all of these institutions purely to your own end but um as i understand it anyway my interpretation is that they're sort of like vital sites of politics and to combine them all into one totemic thing falls into the trap of what we were saying before of um, thinking that there is this ultimate state determinism that um, sort of we're all encumbered by up until the point where we overthrow the state and institute the um, dictatorship of the proletariat. I mean, and that's, the cultural that, revolution that, and the cultural revolution. I mean, that's <laughs> that's 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 the that's the left wing deviation, right? Is to just like. Um, just think that there's going to be an insurrection tomorrow and just wait for the insurrection kind of thing. Yeah. It, uh, this is fucking stupid for many reasons, I feel like. The first <laughs> one is exactly what you're saying about, like, when we read the classic Althusser essay, I was like, why is he grouping the family in with the state? He hasn't really explained that. That seems kind of dumb, but I kind of just went along with it because I was like, it's just, I see what he's it's saying. It's just cool in the 60s to criticize the family, yeah. I think. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, hey, yeah, exactly. He makes, I'll, before I get into it, he makes four points about why actually these ideological state apparatuses 
you should call them the state, in fact. And the first one is, I think, the only real reason. The first one is he just defines the state as that which maintains social capitalist social cohesion. And it's like, I wouldn't define it like that. That's way too encompassing. Like, that's what the state does. Yeah, that's what, like, the so-called repressive state apparatus does. That's also what the ISAs do. But then to, like, lump them all into one thing. It's like you're allowed to have one word for the government and the police force and the bureaucracy and all of that and then have some nuance and be like – because just calling calling the family the state, it's like, wow, epic. You know what I mean? It's like, wow, schools, man. You ever thought about that? It's pretty crazy. It's like you're correct, but also that's not the state. I'm sorry. The second point he makes is that obviously repressive state apparatuses are always there to prop up the ideological ones, which is a fair point. Again, don't know why logically that makes sense to call ideological state apparatus as the state, but he's correct. Then he says, when like one of these two halves changes, the second one will always follow, right? So like when the state form changes or whatever, then the ISAs will change along with it and its values will change to like keep up with, you know, that historical specific point, right? Which also makes sense. You see, you know, you know, flyover states in America, sorry, flyover states are like pro-union and then they're not union. And now they're all pro-church and now they're not pro-church. You know what I mean? Like this stuff does constantly change and what a family means obviously constantly changes. And then the fourth reason is um, because it all must be smashed, man. So therefore it's all the same thing, which... there's so much wrong with that that like i don't even know where to begin it's like obviously all of that stuff needs to be changed but the way that palancis wrote this was like reached so much of like an authoritarian state takeover you know what i mean it's like i don't this is like the kind of typical line of reasoning that you get that's like the working class is not all radical the most radical parts of the working class must help to um, break the rest of the class free and do socialism. The most radical part of the working class should form a political party. Therefore, my political party is the vanguard and therefore everyone else should do what I say. It's like a very slippery slope. And when we read that Shlomo Avenieri where he was talking all about terror, right? And about what it means to like have a revolution descend into terror. It's, I think that, that his criticism there really rings true because it's like the purpose of a revolution isn't to like day one smash all of this shit and just tell people proles like included oh you like your family too fucking bad there's no more families you like your church too bad i'm an atheist you know what i mean like obviously that's all necessary but i think that he's confusing oh no i'm gonna sound like a left deviationist he's confusing the like thing that needs to be changed which is value production for the like political right he's basically saying you need to change all of this stuff and then we'll get socialism. In reality, it's if we get rid of value production and if we get socialism, all of this shit will just fall away. The ideological stuff, right? It's like just saying it all needs to be smashed. Leave the smashing to the RSAs. Leave the smashing to the repressive state apparatuses. Let people go to their church if they want to go to their church. You know what I'm saying? Because like when there's no longer anything for the church to prop up, then the church will just disappear. And if you try to do anything otherwise, you're just going to alienate the entire working class, you know? Yeah. And then yeah, I mean, one, one, one more. Actually, no, you go ahead. <laughs> I said, well, I was just going to say that I feel like my my understanding, incorrect as it may be, my understanding of sort of like classical Leninism 
and the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat is you have a political revolution you replace um sort of like directly repressive but also the sort of like the sort of directly political aspects of the bourgeois state regime and then you have a protracted process called the dictatorship of the proletariat where it takes a long time to overhaul all of these institutions and remove their bourgeois aspects and um sort of like culture and society has to evolve in some ways under these conditions to allow for sort of like higher stages of communism um and i wonder whether there's an extent to which what's happening here is under um the palancis model the althusser model there's the kind of like jump to communism day one um idea lingering in the background maybe yeah. i'm just being like um yeah i think also though there is like a tendency within that as you're describing that kind of like i think like generous but also like correct read of what kind of like a classical leninism should be i think that there is also a tendency of if there is this political takeover to then just look around and be like well yeah why do we want to keep any of this shit around get rid of all of the churches you know what i mean so it's like to be generous to leninism even if it didn't want to just smash all those things day one as i think it recognizes it shouldn't and that that would be a bad move there might not be a kind of like systemic tendency towards just letting things chill but yeah the only other thing i was going to say was that um as you said that like when Palantis is like, well, man, just look at like the student revolutions. It's like, you can't even try to like resist things at like the university. I think that that is really unfair. And I think that it is not a very scientific read of the way the capitalist society is unfolded. And I get that this was being written like 50 years ago. So to be generous to them, the examples that I'm going to use of things that like, where there has been on the ground resistance to ISAs or whatever that have been at least partially successful, I would say are like feminism, like kind of like first wave feminism and also, and obviously, um, and I don't want to use atheism cause that's lame, but like, <laughs> but like, you know, the like so-called, I don't know, gender revolution or the trans revolution, right? Like that is like a direct threat to the capitalist ISA of the family. Right. And it's one that has been really violently pushed back against as is just even like basic first wave feminism wages for housework stuff as well but like i don't know maybe that gets into a question of like is that why why did that stuff happen is it because of capitalism kind of atomizing people or is it in spite of capitalism but um but yeah palantis once again maybe taking it a bit too far and saying you can't resist this stuff because it's like we'll tell that to people who are marginalized by them you know what i mean like yeah absolutely yeah and yeah. just the successes that have been had in those scenes as well but yeah um isas i didn't think i would get heated talking about this stuff again but <laughs> yeah there you go yeah we're still mad still mad damn you althusser um all right was there anything else on this um that you wanted to get to uh, uh um, there are probably other things but there's nothing I think I think I think I might be done. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this one th- I will say very good. Um, we do need to read more stuff on the state. Um, mm-hmm. So, if anybody has suggestions, let us know. It does seem like at some point we should try and engage with state and revolution. I know we've been joking about that for almost a hundred episodes. Although, was it Palantis or was it Miliband in this that was like 
there are some exceptions to people who have actually written about the state and he cites state and revolution, but then he's like, that's kind of a, just like a polemical work and is one that's very like of its moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's Palantis that says that this isn't one of um, Lenin's more theoretical works, but then like Palantis seems to love a theoretical work and, you know, like it's just got a, got a, you know, he just loves some theory. Yeah. Hey, who doesn't? Who doesn't? He's a theory guy theory guy the theory cell yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he, he wants us all to read the whatever lenin's text called like the development of capitalism and yeah in russia oh, yeah and, i don't know about that <laughs> listen we'll read books about the state but only if they're as short or shorter as the one about the american constitution yeah that's that's yeah, about yeah. as much concrete detail as we can take <laughs> what are you gonna do um yeah. Yeah, what would be Dan. a good thing to read about the states that, that's not State and Revolution or the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. or Gramsci. <laughs> no, yeah, no, yeah. definitely not that. Um, uh-huh. Baseball playoffs are going on right now, Dan. Uh-huh. And Dodgers, by the time this comes out, probably going to be eliminated in the first round, which is pretty cool. Let the listener know. Year? I don't know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let the listener know we're recording this Wednesday night. Dodgers are just about to start playing. Probably going to get swept by a team that sucks from a state that is going to be nuked in the water wars. And I'm not salty about it at all. So, you know, baseball playoffs. I love them every year. Everything cool happens. Houston's probably going to win the fucking World Series again, too. I wonder whether our um, very valued listener and email correspondence... person alex when (laughs) when they said that i don't always not always interested in things that you talk about whether this is what they were referring to (laughs) it was either that or war definitely not the war yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. we should find some other things to talk about yeah i can't be bothered we do have other interests guys don't worry yeah marxism (laughs) it could be worse we could just have a warhammer podcast yeah we used to talk about like albums that we'd listen to and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Where did that go? What are you gonna do? I don't know. Maybe we'll. Maybe uh, we also need suggestions for what to do for episode one hundred because we've been mm-hmm. knocking around ideas about like the memes that we could do, which is the constant joke of reading State and Revolution, or we could go back and read the first book that we read, reread it, which was Miliband, which is why I... we keep joking about Miliband because for those first few episodes, you just kept coming up and everything we read. I don't know. Or we could just have like I don't know, I don't know, just one where we just talk. No one would listen to that though. So no, <laughs> we need, we live by the algorithm, Dan. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I'm done as well. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, Jack. Goodbye, Dan. Thank you very much. I'll talk with you next time. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Yeah.